and welcome to the latest podcast from the Stevenson Harwood International Employment and Data Protection Groups. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the whole series of podcasts on iTunes or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Emily Ide. I'm a senior associate in our international employment group, and I'm based in our Middle East office in Dubai. This podcast is all about recent developments in the data protection law regime in the Dubai International Financial Centre, known as the DIFC. Now, recently, the DIFC authority has been consulting with companies and other stakeholders on a proposal to introduce a new data protection law in the DIFC aimed at bringing the law closer into line with international developments in data protection, specifically the EU General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR. So today, we're going to discuss... First, the background and development of the data protection legislation in the DIFC, the key features of the current data protection law, recent legal developments, specifically the impact of the GDPR. Fourth, the key features of the proposed new data protection law in the DIFC. And lastly, we'll take a look at some of the practical steps that DIFC data controllers and processors should be expecting to take given the GDPR and proposals for the new DIFC law. And I say we because I'm joined by Jonathan Kersop, who's a partner in our London office and heads up our global data protection and information law practice. Thanks, Emily. Do you want to maybe kick things off and explain a little bit about how the current data protection laws in the DIFC came about and how it currently protects the processing of personal data? So the current governing law is DIFC law number one of 2007 concerning data protection and that established a comprehensive data protection regime in the DIFC. That was preceded by a 2004 law and some accompanying regulations which sets out various requirements for the processing of personal data and sensitive personal data and also includes certain rights which are afforded to data subjects such as the right to be informed before personal data is disclosed and the right to object to processing. That 2004 law was then administered by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, the DFSA, and that applied to DFSA-authorised entities. The scope of that law was limited to financial services, reflecting the priority at that time to establishing minimum protection to support the exchange of personal data between banking and financial institutions in financial centres across the world and, and in the EU. Now, fast forward a few years to 2007, and the scope was expanded to cover all DIFC entities, not just companies under the DFSA's remit. Okay, and so what are the main features, in your view, of the the current DIFC law? Well, the current law regulates the use of personal data, so essentially information relating to individuals, and the use by organisations established in the DIFC acting as what we call data controllers. Now, data controller means the organisation determines how and why the data is used. So that may include data about employees or customers, for example. Now, the law provides that certain conditions need to be met to ensure that processing is fair and lawful, including providing appropriately transparent notices of use and sets out some high-level security standards. There are also provisions regulating the transfer of personal data outside the DIFC, including controls on transfers to jurisdictions that aren't classified as having an adequate level of protection for data. And certain rights are also granted to individual data subjects, such as the right to access personal data held about them. Finally, there are 
compliance obligations, which include notifying the DIFC Commissioner of Data Protection about any personal data processing activities that are undertaken and keeping appropriate records of that and notifying the Commissioner when a breach has occurred. Now, the law has been amended a couple of times to introduce fines and a supporting enforcement regime and is being brought into line with international best practices to stay ahead of recent regulatory developments in Europe, specifically GDPR. Now, Johnny, you're the expert on GDPR. What does that do and how does the law and the DIFC compare to the regime in the EU? Well, the first thing is, is it is pretty closely aligned, certainly to the law as it was in Europe. So the current DIFC data protection law is based on and adopts a lot of the terminology from the 1995 European Data Protection Directive, and in particular the law that implemented that in the UK, the UK Data Protection Act 1998. So it was very similarly drafted, very similar terms. So there's already a, a degree of synergy between the regimes. Now, the European 95 Directive was repealed and superseded in May last year by the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which was designed to harmonise data protection law across the EU and transform the way in which personal data is collected, shared and used, albeit it did build on the existing concepts and terminology contained in the old 95 Data Protection Directive. But why should DIFC companies or companies in the Middle East more generally be concerned about a piece of EU legislation? Uh, Well, there are a few reasons. Perhaps most importantly, the GDPR has some extraterritorial application. So specifically, the regulation applies to the processing of personal data in the context of an establishment of a controller or processor in the Union, the European Union, regardless of whether the processing takes place inside or outside the EU. So global companies that have operations in both Europe and the Middle East may be caught um, if personal data that is operationally relevant to the European business is processed in the Middle East. This is reinforced by the fact that many global groups apply a highest common denominator approach. uh, So we'll have global policies which will likely be based on GDPR standards and which apply across the world to its group wherever they're located. And then more directly, the GDPR can apply to the processing of personal data of data subjects in the EU by non-EU controllers or processors, where the processing is related to either offering of goods or services to data subjects in the EU or the monitoring of their behaviour while they are in the EU. Okay, so on the first limb you mentioned, offering goods or services to EU-based data subjects, what exactly does that mean? How does a company based in the DIFC know that its activities will be caught? I mean, is it enough that a company has a website which is accessed by EU nationals, for example? Well, in determining whether a non-EU controller in the Middle East or elsewhere is offering goods or services to data subjects, a key question is whether the controller envisages offering its products or services to individuals in the EU. So how targeted is it? The fact that a website may be accessible in the EU is not necessarily in itself sufficient to establish that there's an intention to offer goods or services to EU residents. Equally, the use of a European language like English or French in Middle East countries would not necessarily create an assumption that an offer is being made directly and directed to the EU, especially as such languages are common in the region. However, other factors such as an ability to pay and using the corresponding currency of that European country would be much more likely to create an assumption that a controller envisages offering goods or services to the data subjects in the EU. 
Similarly, any direct reference to EU customers would create a similar assumption. So to give an example, and one I came across recently, having visited the region recently, a Dubai hotel operator might promote offers to European tourists and take bookings in pounds or euros via its website. They would clearly, almost certainly, be determined to be offering products or services to EU data subjects. That means the GDPR would apply to the processing of personal data, so it might be the names, addresses, payment details of those European visitors. To give an alternative example, an online retailer in Kuwait with a website in Arabic, French and English that only accepts payment in Kuwaiti dinar and delivers its products exclusively within the GCC would be unlikely to be caught by this provision, even if the website was technically accessible by individuals in Europe. There's no real intent to target or, or provide those services into the EU. I think it's also worth saying it's relevant that products or services must be directed at individuals and not corporates. So, for example, a DIFC investment bank, which has corporate clients in the EU, would not be caught by the extraterritorial provisions of the GDPR in respect of processing of personal data about directors or officers of that company, which often does for KYC or AML purposes, even though those individuals are in the EU as the product or service is provided to the company and not to the individual in the EU. So it's very much a sort of business-to-consumer type provision for that to apply. In respect of the second limb, which is about monitoring activities of EU individuals, that would cover a wide range of sort of automated analytical techniques. So typically use of cookies, logging IP addresses, or obtaining location data via mobile app. Retailers in the Middle East, such as airlines, hotels, and others in the hospitality industry, should be particularly aware that the use of online marketing or monitoring practices may create an additional burden if they're being used to profile European consumers. So it's the same point about it being an individual that you're profiling there, which would catch it. So in both limbs, it's worth noting that the provisions only bite where the behaviour being monitored or the offering of the goods or service occurs in the EU. So, for example, while the collection of EU individuals' data by a hotel in Dubai via its website, when those individuals are booking their stay, would be caught if those individuals, as I did last week, hand over a card or passport when physically in Dubai, then that latter activity wouldn't be caught because it doesn't relate to processing of an activity relating to an activity in the EU itself. The final point I would make is there can be misunderstanding from some of our clients and other contacts based in the Middle East that the GDPR applies to the processing of data about EU nationals wherever that takes place. So Emily, for example, you are an UK citizen and at least at the moment an EU national. That doesn't mean that the processing of your personal data by our Dubai office, based in the DIFC, would be subject to provisions of GDPR because that would be being done in Dubai and in that context. So as you can see, it can be quite nuanced, which is why it can be helpful to adopt an approach that assumes a high GDPR standard across the board, just so that it makes it easier to apply processes and procedures on a consistent level. Well, thanks for clearing that up, Johnny. Some really helpful examples there. So there's already some direct impact of the GDPR on DIFC data controllers. And we've mentioned the fact that the DIFC authority is keen to keep pace with the EU's developments in the area. And that, of course, has prompted the proposal to update the 2007 DIFC law. 
Now, the DIFC authority launched its consultation earlier this year on the 18th of June, and that closed on the 18th of August. And in launching that consultation, the authority expressly stated that the proposed law is aimed at ensuring continuity and consistency with broader international landscape. And so again, it's based on much of the principles and concepts found within the GDPR, together with some bespoke modifications to reflect the latest technology, developments in privacy and data security law, as well as the unique requirements of the DIFC. So can I ask you to tell us a bit more about the GDPR influences that we can see in the DIFC's proposed new law? So some of the key features which we see as mirroring the GDPR would be things such as transparency. So there's already an obligation to provide certain information about how data is being handled by an organisation. Those requirements are increased in their detail and extent. So additional information will need to be provided in privacy policies once this comes into force. Secondly, I guess there's provisions regarding consent and the high threshold that is required for that to be valid. Another one would be the relationship with processors. So these are third parties who handle data on behalf of a controller, so service providers of different kinds. They're now directly responsible under the law with respect to certain obligations, such as security, whereas previously the regime only bit on controllers. And there's further compliance requirements relating to high-risk processing. So that would include having a designated data protection officer and carrying out so-called data protection impact assessments to work out privacy risks at an early stage. Again, that is very much mirrored from the GDPR. And then certain more prescriptive obligations, again, relating to the obligations between controllers and processors, including contractual terms that are required between the those parties. And then the final point probably be is is beefing up data subjects' rights. So you mentioned earlier some of the rights data subjects have in the DIFC currently. Uh, there's some additional rights in the proposed new law, such as the right to withdraw consent and right not to be subject to profiling or other decisions based on automated processing. And again, all these are directly derived from the GDPR. So potentially a lot there. And I suppose DIFC companies may be looking at this, thinking about how they might be impacted if these proposals make it into the final law. What kind of steps could they be taking in anticipation to prepare for that? Well, I think the most fundamental first step and and something that a lot of companies did in Europe to prepare for the GDPR was to really understand what personal data they handle as an organisation, for what reasons they use it and with whom it is shared. I think the reasons behind that is with the increased emphasis on transparency, companies will be expected to maintain accurate records of data they hold and how they use it, as well as communicating this clearly to individual data subjects. So carrying out such a data audit or data mapping exercise is therefore an important first step and something that companies can do now to to get ready. I think what will then flow from that will be requirements once the law does bite to review and update privacy notices and terms. So understanding where you have those and within which documents such notices may be provided would be important. And then how you would likely need to update your privacy policies and such like to meet those enhanced standards. And I think the final thing I'd mention as a preparatory stage would be identifying contracts with third party 
processes and a key element of any remediation regime will be to review and update those so understanding the extent of that exercise so you can get budget etc get some people on the ground to update those agreements a big exercise we did for a lot of clients with the gdpr was updating their contracts with third parties with data protection addendums and and such like so sort of getting a feel for how big an exercise that would be locating those agreements and if you are renegotiating them maybe future proofing them with some terms which are likely to be compliant with the new law when that comes into into force i see that's some really useful and, and practical advice there i think i'd like to pick up on one of the gdpr inspired proposals you mentioned earlier around the withdrawal of consent Something I'd like to delve into a bit more of is it's it's particularly relevant in the employment context. And, and obviously, as an employment law specialist, I can see where this might potentially trip up employers because under the current data protection law under DIFC, employers can rely on an employee's consent as the basis for processing personal data. Although we typically advise clients against relying on consent, don't we? That's right. Uh, consent is a, is a tricky area and it's something that Traditionally, people have sought to rely on thinking it's the highest threshold. But for consent to be freely given, which is a requirement of the law, it is difficult for this to be the case in the context of an employment relationship, given the potential imbalance of power between an employer and their employee. You know, how free are they to refuse a request of the employer? I think it's also undesirable from the employer's perspective because, again, for consent to be valid, it needs to be capable of being withdrawn. So in many cases, especially again in the employment context, there will be another lawful ground for processing which would be more appropriate. So consent is just one of, of, of several options to rely on for processing personal data. Other grounds would include where processing is necessary for the performance of a contract. So it might be necessary for the performance of the employment contract, for instance, to get certain details about tax codes and bank accounts etc to pay salaries and benefits that would be necessary for your contract to process that data or it might be necessary for other legitimate interests of the organization which provided you are transparent and clear about how the data is used is is again a lawful ground which is normally more appropriate uh, particularly in an employment context. Well, I think many of our clients will simply say, well, shouldn't we just ask for employees' consent anyway? I mean, of course, asking for consent where there's another lawful ground for processing would be misleading. As you say, it could be misleading. Uh, and this was highlighted by a recent case uh, in Greece under the GDPR in which an employer was fined €150,000 by the Hellenic Data Protection Authority, HDPA, for wrongly relying on consent as its basis for processing employees' personal data. And this followed a complaint to the HDPA that employees were being required to provide consent by their employer to the processing of their personal data. So in this case, the HDPA found that the employees were being given the false impression that the employer was processing their data on the basis of the lawful grounds of consent, when in fact it was based on alternative grounds of previously mentioned, such as legitimate interests and or processing as necessary for a contract with the employee. So it wasn't that there wasn't a lawful basis to handle the data, but it was a failure to 
provide accurate information as to their legal basis, which violated the data protection principle of transparency. And this is a principle in the GDPR which has been adopted in the proposed DIFC data protection law, so will be of of great importance uh, in the new law when that comes into force uh, shortly. So a learning point there for employers not to routinely include data protection consents in employment contracts or indeed in application forms for new job applicants. Instead, what you're saying is they should identify the most appropriate ground for processing and inform employees of this in an appropriate privacy notice. So what was the employer's fate in that case? Well, in addition to opposing a fine, the HDPA gave the employer three months to to amend and, and change their operations so that it would be brought into line with, with the GDPR. I think at this point, the question of fines is worth touching on. The, the GDPR has very punitive fines of up to 4% of worldwide turnover or 20 million euros, whichever is the higher. Clearly, this fine was significantly less than that, which reflected the type of breach it was. From a DIFC perspective, it, it seems that the proposed law doesn't intend to adopt the punitive fines of the GDPR, but there has been a removal of the table of fines that were in the DIFC law or are in the DIFC law now, suggesting that the commissioner wants to have a bit more discretion as to how it enforces the regime. So that will be interesting to see how it develops uh, going forward. Definitely. I mean, the commissioner's enforcement team in the DIFC has to date adopted the fairly pragmatic approach to enforcement and and looking rather to work with companies to achieve compliance rather than imposing an unduly strict regime. Because a dedicated data protection law like the DIFC one is still relatively rare in the region. There are some being developed in Bahrain and Qatar, but it is generally understood that there remains a degree of ignorance. But having said that, the commissioner is keen for the DIFC not to be the weak link in the global chain, and I think may well be more inclined to enforce more rigorously, particularly if that's in concert with efforts at a federal level, and commentators and and stakeholders are waiting developments at a federal level for a comprehensive data protection law across the UAE. So thank you, Johnny. That's been very enlightening. That's the end of this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm sure we'll be back with an update on this, certainly when the, the law comes into force. In the meantime, if you're looking for more guidance on the current DIFC data protection law, you can refer to the DIFC's commissioned commentaries and our chapter in volume two of laws of the DIFC. Of course, if you'd like to listen again, you can do just that and subscribe to the whole series of employment podcasts on iTunes or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. Mm